We're continuing in our study in Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus 25. Your bulletin says I'm going to cover the entire chapter. That was my intent uh, earlier in the week when I was lining out my uh, preparation. And then I just got so much stuff out of the first nine verses that I thought, let's break it up. Uh, so we're not going to read all of chapter 25. We're just going to read the first nine verses. Uh, but we will read our complementary passage, which is Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. So with your Bibles open to the epistle to the Hebrews, in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, hear God's word. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen." goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. Thus far, in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and to the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would help us to understand that we may love, that we may obey, that we may be changed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So we've been moving through the book of Exodus, obviously, for several months, and we come to this place called Sinai, the Sinaitic Covenant. The children of Israel have been brought out of the land of Egypt, and they've been brought to God's holy mountain. You remember, God met Moses there on Mount Sinai. The angel of the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush, and he said, you're going to bring the people here that they may worship me. Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, said, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go three days into the wilderness that they may worship me. 
And now, all of the great events that we have been looking at, the, the, the plagues and the deliverance and all of that, now the people have come to the place that God said they needed to come to. And at that place, Mount Sinai, he calls them to camp for about a year. This is a long period of time that they're gathered there at the base of Mount Sinai. And this period of time begins in Exodus chapter 18, or the narrative of this period of time, begins in Exodus chapter 18 and runs all the way through Numbers chapter 9. So Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all of this up through Numbers chapter 9 is the Sinaitic Covenant. The Sinaitic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, is broken into seven sections. There are seven, seven is the number of completion, it's the number of holiness and perfection. These seven sections give us different aspects of God's command regarding Israel. As we looked at chapters 18 through 20, we saw that first section is the bridal contract. God inviting Israel to come and marry him. The second set, and and that bridal contract is followed by a theophany, an appearance of God. That appearance of God in Exodus chapter 20 is thick darkness. And then we have the second of the seven sections, which we've been covering from chapters 21 through 24. And that is how, and, and most of your Bibles, and actually it's a, it's a good division, uh, they call it social justice. Uh, now, the problem is, as soon as I say that, it comes with an awful lot of contemporary baggage. Uh, and, and so I'm not wanting you to hear any of the contemporary context uh, that that label comes with. It's simply... What does a just society look like? That's the point of those passages, of those laws from 21 to 20, chapters 21 to 24. And it ends again with an appearance of God. Now this section, this third of the seven sections, begins here in chapter 25. And it goes through chapter 31. It's bracketed by the phrase, and you'll see it in your Bibles, it's bracketed by the phrase, the tablets of stone. In chapter 24 and verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. That's how our section begins. And then our section closes in chapter 31 and verse 18 And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So whatever's happening, whatever's going on between chapter 24 and verse 18 and chapter 31, whatever's going on in there is this unit. It's in the front, tablets of stone, in the back, tablets of stone, and so there's something that is tying all of these passages together. It's interesting, if you'll remember, I said each of these seven sections ends with a theophany, ends with an appearance of God. Now the section that we're going to be looking at now ends with the golden calf. If you look at chapter 35, you see 
the golden calf. But do you remember what Aaron said to introduce the golden calf? He said, look at your God. This perverted theophany. Aaron presents it as a theophany. And that's part of why God is so outraged at this. He did not command Aaron to do it. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. We'll get into that once we get there. Let's right now focus on this third of the seven sections. Now we know that this third section, this third section, at least this section, took place over 40 days. Because the close of chapter 24 tells us that Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. The very last verse, verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so this period of preparation that 40 days typically refers to, you think of Jesus' temptation uh, in the wilderness, this, this period of preparation for something new for something extraordinary uh, that is going to be taking place in the history of redemption, then gives way to the tabernacle laws, worship laws. So, let's, there, there's, there's kind of bringing us up to speed to our passage that's in front of us right now. I would imagine that most of you, whether it's because you don't come from a Presbyterian and Reformed background, or whether it's because you've gone on vacations, most of you have worshipped in a church whose worship service looks very different from ours. Most of you are at least familiar with worship services that do not follow our, and and when I say our, I'm not saying it's unique to Sterling. I think it's generally plain, vanilla, reformed Presbyterian worship. So if you go to any OPC congregation, any PCA congregation, RCUS, RPCNA, uh, you're, you're going to see essentially all the same order of worship. You'll even see it in the liberal churches. Uh, the liberal Presbyterian churches still follow this essential order of worship, which is the call to worship, the reading of the law, the confession of sin, the assurance of pardon, the sermon, depending on how conservative you are, that's how long it goes. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the sermon, and then uh, finally the closing and the benediction, all of these things you're familiar with. You're also familiar with services that don't do that at all. Services that maybe are four or five songs in the front, and then a prayer, and three or four more songs. Any order of worship, any order of worship is going to speak to what we believe is happening in that service. Alright? Did you hear that? Any order of worship is going to speak to what we believe is happening in worship. 
And that's why God sets up this order of worship. And as we'll see as we move through this passage briefly this morning, we're going to see two things that stand out, particularly from these first nine verses. We're going to see first the pattern that's established by God. And secondly, we're going to see the people that God calls to worship Him. The pattern and the people. Now, you saw that word pattern that appeared there, and actually in our complementary passage in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews makes the point even more clearly. In verse in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse uh, 23 and 24, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifice than these. For Jesus has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So where's the copy of the true thing? Well, that's what God tells Moses to make. That's the copy. The copy, the tabernacle, is a copy of the true thing. Do you see that? Do you see the writer of the Hebrews making that point? And God tells Moses to establish this exactly as I show you concerning, notice the word there, the pattern of the tabernacle. This word almost every time that it's used in the Old Testament refers to something that is a copy. In other words, when you see, and probably in your Bible, you've got a you know, illustration there somewhere if you've got a study Bible of the, of the layout of the tabernacle and, and what the tabernacle, all the different elements in the tabernacle. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. Catch this. Here's the point. The tabernacle is a copy of what is true. Moses does not invent this worship. Moses is instructed, follow this worship, follow this blueprint, follow this pattern exactly. Because Moses, God doesn't explain to Moses that this is a copy. He doesn't explain to the children of Israel that this is a pattern. He just says do it. But he does it not being arbitrary. Why is the tabernacle laid out the way it's laid out? Why is it so important that the tabernacle be situated exactly as it is? You don't know. If you are a child of Israel, if you are the one that is receiving this instruction, you have no idea. God does not explain Himself to Moses, and He does not explain Himself to the people. The only thing He does is He says... Follow this exactly. This is a copy of something else. Now, I say that because, and this is to you young people who have grown up in Christian worship. There was, in my own life, I grew up in a Christian home, grew up in Christian worship. There was a real sense in which 
all of the stuff that we did before the sermon was just in my mind like we had a checklist. And it was like tick, 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 tick. And, you know, we could actually, sometimes I might even do it on my bulletin. I'd just check it off. Okay, we're getting through this, getting through this. Because I didn't really care. I didn't really care about this. Mom and Dad made me go to church. I knew that after church we were going to have lunch. So somewhere after here I get, woohoo, lunch. <laughs> I just kind of went through it. It didn't, it didn't ever really grab me. I never really asked questions of it. Why is this done the way it's done? Why are we doing this and what am I supposed to be doing in this? Whatever the liturgy, and liturgy is just what's the order in which you worship. That's all it means. You have high liturgy, you have low liturgy, whatever. Liturgy is just a style of worship. And whatever the style of worship that you and I participate in, it reinforces what is at the heart of what we believe worship is. I realize that's a long-winded way, but again, I think this is a fairly critical point, so I'm going to repeat it. Whatever your style of worship, maybe you sing three songs and then have a prayer and then sing three more songs, or maybe you have a call to worship, reading of the law, singing of a hymn, reading of the law, etc., etc. Whatever that order is, reinforces what you think is happening there. What that worship service is for. So, I'll give you an example. If worship is supposed to make me feel the Spirit of God, feel close to Jesus Christ, feel the love of God surrounding me. And therefore, as a result of that love of God that I feel surrounding me, then I'm going to go and live righteously. Then our worship service is going to be centered on a lot of songs that tend to evoke that feeling, that that tend to, to, to move us towards that feeling. And... It's not a bad feeling. Don't hear me criticizing other forms of worship service, other liturgies. I'm not doing that. I'm I'm saying there are many dear brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that this is really what worship is supposed to do. And so the worship service is crafted around that. In the same way, if you simply walk through a Reformed liturgy and you're just in your mind ticking off the steps so that we can get done and go have lunch then this is useless to you. This is a waste of time. This is not you grabbing everything that can be grabbed out of this. God does say that something is absolutely at the very heart of worship. And that something that is at the heart of worship is itself reality. That ark, there was nothing magical about the ark. You know, what, what was the guy's name? Indiana Jones. 
I'm pretty sure if Indiana Jones found the ark and opened it up, demons wouldn't rush out and melt his face off like it did in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just a thing. It's ironic. Did you notice that it's made out of acacia wood? The cheapest wood, the most readily available wood that they could find. Acacia wood grows everywhere in that area. There's nothing special about the thing. But it's what the thing represents. And you'll see this as we go through this this, uh, dressing up really, of the tabernacle. Did you notice the people are to bring gold, silver, and bronze? A clear ordering of the most to the least precious. And as you look at the tabernacle, the most precious is right there at the center. It's the Ark of the Covenant that's covered in gold with the cherubim over the mercy seat. And the cherubim are beaten gold. There's nothing in the cherubim. It's not alloy. It is pure gold over the golden mercy seat. And then as we move out, we get into the silver and the bronze. But right there at the very heart is the pattern of what is real. Beloved, what is real for you, for me, for the children of Israel is that when you and I come into the presence of God, we come to that central place of mercy. That's where we come. The place where God delights to be merciful. All of the extra things, or not extra, but all, all, all of the secondary, all of the secondary things flow out of the preciousness of the mercy of God. The sacrifices are part of His mercy. I mean, yes, you see God's justice on display in pouring out His wrath upon sin. But beloved, what is it that made Jesus Christ our sin Bearer is mercy. It's God's mercy to you and to me and to the covenant promises that he's given. And so God gives Moses absolutely no wiggle room for embellishing. You know, you you can think if you're one of the artists and God said, put this up here. And so you make it, and you go, you know, it looks so much prettier if I had just a little curly cue right here. I just, you know, God loves beauty, and I'm just going to add a little beauty. God says, absolutely not. You make it exactly as I tell you to make it. Because God wants to communicate through the forms a glorious and central point. And beloved... Our liturgy is going to reflect that. Our worship style, our worship is going to reflect what God says is at the center. And so imperfectly, what we try to do is we try to reflect God's 
mercy, his love, and his care for his children. It's interesting, I had a conversation not too long ago about someone with someone who thought that maybe my preaching emphasizes grace a little too much and that I really need to be telling people how to live their lives. And, you know, I, I appreciate, I always appreciate feedback. And I promise it doesn't always run off my back like water off a duck's. And generally, I don't make examples of it. But, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I emphasize grace is because, brothers and sisters, if you understand sin, if you understand yourself, I don't think I need to be telling you to shape up. I don't think I need to be telling you to get your act together. I think you and I should be coming to this place going, Lord, I've been trying, I've been trying, I've been wanting, I've been loving, and I'm failing. And what do you need? You need Christ. You need mercy. You need grace. And you need to be reminded that there is grace there for broken people and for broken sinners. And beloved, that is absolutely right there at the very heart of the tabernacle. The most precious thing in there is that mercy seat. The angels peering down in wonder at the mercy of God towards these idiots who even now are crafting an idol. (laughs) As he's giving them the instructions for how to focus upon his mercy, they're down there making a golden calf. Oh, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his grace. Because you and I need it. God's pattern is a pattern of the reality. But then secondly, God's people. I think it's fascinating. If you note verse 2, look at verse 2 there. What is the standard by which you are to donate? I, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, this is a, an appropriate time. Israel is a nation, a system of taxation. Let every man bring a tithe, right? Every man bring according to the members of his house. Every man bring X amount. God makes a point of saying, as his heart moves him. Because, beloved, do you see, right from the beginning, God wasn't interested in formal obedience. He wasn't interested in you ticking the boxes. He was never interested in good boys and good girls. He's always been wanting your heart. From the very beginning when he gives the Ten Commandments in the context of a marriage, he wants your love and your heart. That is when you and I can truly appreciate God's mercy. If you truly do appreciate God's mercy then you have to be in love with Him. You've got to fall in love with this beautiful Lord. You see, the forms are important. 
because the pattern of worship has to reflect that divine reality. But without you personally being engaged, the forms are useless. Again, I'll give you a quick example. I have attended so un, so, uh, so-called high liturgy worship services. Episcopalian, uh, Roman Catholic, I've been in cathedrals. Uh, I've told you all before, if the Lord ever blessed us with a building and I was going to be the designer of that building, it would not look like an airplane hangar. It would look like a cathedral. I love cathedrals. I love what they say. I love the forms. Those forms drawing our eyes upward, transcendent, all of the things that that these beautiful forms bring to our minds. If you step into one of these services, if you step into one of these worship spaces, it does give you a sense of wonder, of awe. It it, It calls your eyes upwards to heaven. All of these beautiful things... But all these beautiful things can become just meaningless, can't they? You go into, and and in terms of cathedrals, us Presbyterians have built some of the most beautiful. Uh, First Presbyterian Church in Columbus, First Presbyterian Church of New Orleans. uh, That is one of the most beautiful church buildings that I've ever seen. You walk into First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, and you will find 10 or 15 individuals in there in this massive church building, that the church essentially is dead, and the reason for that is because just going through the motions and looking at the forms doesn't do a thing for you after a while. God wants your heart. Those, those, those forms are important, and they're helpful, but they're not the point. The most precious thing in that entire tabernacle is that mercy seat with the cherubim gazing on it. We've been moving through Pilgrim's Progress in this reform meetup thing. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that the story begins with Christian and obstinate and pliable. And the dialogue really is between Christian and pliable. And Christian and Pliable are walking along, and they're both headed on the journey. They're both starting out to the celestial city. But they're motivated by two very different things. And Bunyan draws a picture of the Pliable one, the one who is motivated by he's going to find new friends. He's going to live at ease. It's going to be beautiful. The streets are going to be paved with gold. All of these positive things that Pliable is, is motivated by is what draws him into Christian's company. Christian is motivated by this burden, this burden of sin that he has to get rid of. He's got to get rid of this burden on his back. The two are aiming in the same direction. The two are walking the Christian journey together, one motivated by a desire for good things and one motivated by a burden. And when they fall into the slough of despond, the first challenge in their journey, Pliable gives it up instantly. But it's Christian with that burden of sin. And Bunyan's point 
in making this is, if you want to know the difference between someone who will stay the course and someone who will fall away, here's the diagnostic tool. How burdened are you about your sin? If you say sin is just some old-fashioned Freudian concept that, you know, Freud fixed us from all that long and long ago, whatever. Bunyan was dealing with it in the 1600s. How burdened are you by your sin? Beloved, if you're not personally burdened by your sin, then the mercy seat is just a bunch of cool gold. Mercy seat might as well be melted down to make some cool jewelry. If you are burdened by your sin, then that mercy seat is precious. That's the dividing line. That is the dividing line for you and for me. It's God's mercy that is the absolute central element for His people. And then you think, as gorgeous, as beautiful as this must have been, I mean, can you imagine this ark and this mercy seat with gold and the, and the, the angels out of pure beaten gold that are gathered over it and looking down? This must have been a stunning, stunning work of art. What does the writer of the Hebrews say? All that stuff is junk. You've come to something even better. You've come to the reality. You've come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new and better covenant. So, beloved, as we begin to look through these elements of the tabernacle, these central elements of worship, I want to leave you with this one visual image. That mercy seat, that's the place that you and I dwell. That's the place that is home. And that, beloved, is the place from where you and I can walk in joyful, faithful obedience to God, knowing His mercy, feeling your need for His mercy knowing that that mercy is there in Christ Jesus. That mercy seat is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you feel your personal need for that, and if you cling to Him, then your life and all the questions of obedience and all the questions of how to do it, all of those things are going to come naturally. I don't need to tell you whether to watch Netflix or whether to turn in your television, or whether to watch football or golf on Sundays. I don't need to tell you all of that. What I do need to tell you is the mercy seat. It's yours. It's mine. This is our home. And my life and your life can be lived in joyful reflection. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in these ancient forms, tabernacles, coverings, gold and silver and bronze and goat skins and all of these things, there is a glorious picture. 
is a glorious reality. That reality of your mercy. That reality of what Christ Jesus has done, is doing, and will do to reconcile us to you. Help us, Father, to walk joyfully, obediently, and humbly all the days of our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.